Welcome to episode 27 of the Language Neuroscience Podcast. I'm Stephen Wilson, and I'm a neuroscientist at the University of Queensland in Brisbane, Australia. My guest today is Jean-Rémy King. Jean-Rémy is a CNRS researcher at École Normale Supérieure, currently detached to Meta AI, where he leads the brain and AI team. He's been doing some really groundbreaking work using large language models and deep learning to investigate the neural basis of language. Today, he joins me from Marseille, France, and we're going to talk about three recent papers from his lab. Okay, let's get to it. Hi, JR. How are you today? Hi, I'm, I'm good. Thank you very much for having me. Well, thank you very much for joining me. Um, and it's uh, morning time in Paris, right? Right. I'm actually in Marseille. I live in Marseille, although my, my work is in Paris, yeah. Oh, really? Do you... Yeah. You, oh, okay. So that'll be very convenient for you to come to SNL later this year then, won't it? Absolutely. Okay. So is it, I won't need we... a hotel. <laughs> All right. <laughs> so um, are we going to enjoy um, visiting your, your town? Sure. Yeah. I think it's a beautiful town. It's by the sea. Uh, the city is very nice. There's, there, there are a lot of museums, um, a lot of uh, scientific uh, groups that are definitely related to language and the neurobiology of language. So I think it's a, yeah, it's a great city to, to, uh, to do SNL. Yeah, I'm really excited, really looking forward to it. Um, so I usually start the podcast by asking people about their childhood background. But with you, I want to ask something else first, which is, so we have a, mm. a mutual colleague, Anna Kasdan, and she's told mm-hmm. me some lots of stories about you. And my, but my favorite oh, one well. is that, that you uh, installed Linux on her computer and she couldn't tolerate <laughs> it. Is this true? <laughs> Uh, I don't actually really recall this specifically, but that, that looks, uh, yeah, that sounds completely possible. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you, so you're a Linux guy, she said, but I know that you're doing the recording on a Mac right now. Yeah. So I'm currently working at Meta, uh, where Linux was not an option. It was either Windows or, or Mac. So I had to, I had to go for, for Mac, which is based on Unix system. So it's, uh, it's a bit easier to, um, to accommodate from a Linux, uh, background. Oh, okay. So you've sadly had to move away from it, huh? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, okay. So then getting back to um, how did you become the kind of scientist that you are? Like, were you, uh, what, were, what were your childhood interests? Oh, well, that's a, that's a big question. Um, I don't entirely know. I think it's, it's, um, it's a lot of different factors that are involved. Um, I was originally uh, interested in, in AI uh, when I was quite young. Uh, and it started, I think, when uh, I was playing with Legos. There, there was the Lego Mindstorms at the time that you could program with very rudimentary uh, uh, sort of program that you could you could do. Uh, but that that made me um, uh, interested in the topic and uh, in, in programming. And and I did uh, a first internship in an AI lab in 2000, I think, if I recall correctly. And then I continued. Uh-huh. Uh, in in this domain during my undergrads where I did uh, AI and uh, cognitive science Um, and around that time uh, AI was not really let's say working and so the advice from my uh, professors at the time was to sort of 
try to do something else, maybe <laughs> something with mm-hmm. a real future. Uh, and so what, was, years uh, was, what years would that have been? So that was around 2007, I think, uh, the uh-huh. end of my undergrads. Um, and, and so I, I moved to, to computational neuroscience. So I did a, a two masters in, a, in, in a brain and mind sciences in between UCL and, uh, and Paris at Econormel and uh, UPMC. Um, and then I, I continued in Paris, did a PhD in, uh, in uh, neuroimaging and to try to decode brain activity, um, from uh, healthy participants and, and from patients who suffer from disorders of consciousness. Um, yeah. And that's, uh, yeah, after this, I did a gap year. And after that, I moved to language, uh, in New York, uh, for a postdoc in David Popple's lab. Um, and, uh, and then I joined Meta. I got a position at, uh, Ecole Normale as a CNRS, uh, superior. And now I am detached to, uh, to Meta AI, uh, which is, um, uh, a lab, a fundamental AI research lab, um, that, uh, Meta has. Yeah. So most of our listeners will probably know Meta as the par- parent company of Facebook. And I don't know how mm-hmm. many, like, I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll ask you about it, but like, I don't know whether Facebook has like more rules or Meta has more rules on talking about things than like, a university would would but you know so feel free to um share what you can um but you know what is their what is their long-term are they sort of have a long-term interest in supporting basic research like this they see it as being like central to their future i think uh meta like any big companies is uh, very conscious of the potential of ai and uh the uh, pressing necessity to be at the cutting edge of the of the research because things are moving extremely quickly, and um, they gave I think a lot of opportunity to scientists like Jeff Hinton in the case of Google or Yad Lequin in the case of Facebook and now Meta uh, to build the lab in a way which uh, would work and and uh, both of them in in this uh, particular case went for basically the principles of academia so the general idea is to say that it's very difficult to know what's going to work it's even harder for let's say the hierarchy to know whether a researcher is doing something good or not and so the best way to to uh, evaluate the progress in in research is basically to go through a peer review and uh, an anonymized peer review and, and 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 publication and so i think they they really managed to convince these uh, big tech company to uh, to follow these principles um and mm-hmm. so uh I, yeah in this case the long the long term future is very hard to to know, and I think no one uh, really knows how to position themselves. There are a lot of questions. It can be a case-by-case uh, issue. But what's clear that you need to have uh, sort of the top researchers uh, within your company to, to be able to uh, to compete uh, and, and to, to develop the algorithms that will work tomorrow uh, for their use case. Uh, but researchers want to work on general, general principles. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, because the, you know, the, fascinating stuff you're doing that we're going to talk about in a moment like in you know, a relating these um, large language models to the brain i mean it's not immediately obvious how that gets built into a facebook app right so they're they're willing to kind of give you free reign on doing what you think is what what you think you want to work on and they'll and they'll just see down the track like what it evolves into is that kind of the philosophy yeah, absolutely. I think the, the, the philosophy is to hire, uh, really good people, 
uh, and then to consider that they will make the choices that are the best one for their fields. The, there are some projects which are, uh, directly applicable, let's say, to, uh, to, uh, products. Uh, in the case of computer vision, this is quite clear. Like if you want to filter, uh, hateful contents and, uh, let's say, uh, pornography on, on, on Facebook, you need to have an algorithm that can recognize, uh, the content of images. Uh, and so those who work on fundamental, uh, research in the case of vision have a direct impact, even though they don't necessarily uh, work with, uh, actual, uh, Facebook or Instagram content. Uh, the path is, is much clearer. And, mm-hmm. um, at the other end of the spectrum, there are uh, uh, researchers who are really sort of distant from any application, and the goal is really to try to understand the principle that uh, allow a system to become uh, able to, to learn much more efficiently. And so I would be much more in this um, in this kind of uh, other end of the spectrum. Yes. Yeah, that's really interesting. And do you? So do you interact much with um, other AI folks at? Meta who are doing more applied things that have sort of nearer term applications. So the the lab is quite horizontal. So we we do have meetings together. We have uh, you know, regular moments to to or occasions to to discuss. We try sometimes to bridge uh, to bridge projects. Uh, so for instance, for those who work on uh, language models, uh, we try to to discuss on on what kind of architecture we think is is is. Uh, more relevant uh, to try to learn language uh, at scale. Uh, and so this engages in a conversation. Um, and similarly, in the case of vision, like uh, we have a, an ongoing project uh, if in, in, with a group that works on Dino V2, which is a self-supervised learning algorithm uh, trying to recognize, um, let's say, structures from, from natural images without, uh, without supervision. And we have an ongoing discussion on how we can use uh, neuroscience to try to improve or evaluate uh, these models, which can be uh, very difficult to to do. So, um, so we have interactions, but more I think at the ideas level, and, and sometimes some 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 uh, yeah some coding projects that that are shared together. But uh, generally speaking, it's more an intellectual uh, level of uh, of collaboration than a, a very uh, sort of let's say product oriented. Uh, uh, based uh, collaboration. Yeah. But I think that's a very important level of interaction too. And, and like, there's, you know, there's all of the, there's a history of this, right? Like Bell Labs in the U S um, you know, developed, I think information theory came out of like, I think Shannon was working there, you know, but they definitely produced a lot of stuff that ended up like being like pretty core cognitive science. And it, and it wasn't like, just like what you're saying, it wasn't being done in support of like, we're going to put this in tomorrow. Um, Absolutely. Yann Lequin actually worked in Bell's lab, and I think his, his uh, philosophy on how to organize uh, research um, in the private sector is heavily influenced by this. Bell's, Bell's lab, I think, had four or five Nobel Prizes uh, before they, they closed down, so they, they really had a major impact. And, and the, the core way of uh, the, the core organization was really to let researchers do whatever they, they, they wanted and, and whatever they thought would be uh, in, impactful. So I think, yeah, this is sort of what uh, Yann Lequin managed to, uh, to uh, instill uh, within uh, this company. I think it was kind of the same for, for Google and, and other companies made, made different choices like Amazon and Microsoft work slightly, uh, slightly differently. 
Um, and how did you land this job? Did they come for you or was there a posting and you were like, I'm going to apply to that? Yeah, they reached out to me actually uh, back in uh, 2018. Um, I was surprised, I mean, like you, uh, if I understand your your question correctly, uh, it's I was wondering whether uh, I had a direct utility or relevance for for their goal, um, and it's really I think the big argument that convinced me uh, to join them was the fact that they were working uh, on really a, an open source uh, approach. So they were publishing papers, they were releasing code, releasing models, uh, and I thought that uh, this was. Um, a healthy, a health, a healthy path to to create common good and to to continue uh, do uh, good research. And then once I I, I joined the lab, I was uh, very impressed by the the, the level uh, of the researchers there. It, it's a really um, a top AI lab. The, the conversations are always extremely uh, extremely useful and, and with a lot of intuitions. A, a lot of things that are trying doesn't work as well. or They don't they don't always work, let's say, and, and you learn a lot from those failed attempts. Uh, so, uh, yeah, this environment was very uh, fulfilling in a sense. Yeah, that's great. Um, it's so interesting to talk to you about this because, you know, most of the, my guests are people in academia and um, it's that's the work environment that I'm familiar with. So it's kind of, you know, just neat to hear about um, what it's like for you. So yeah, like, let's talk about some of these papers that we plan to talk about. Um, uh, th these are a couple of a few recent papers that you've published um, with some of your students, um, including Charlotte Kosciuto. Is my pronunciation yeah. acceptable within <laughs> the bounds of my, my accent? Um, and uh, yeah, we were going to talk first about a paper. It's called Toward a Realistic Model of Speech Processing in the Brain with Self-Supervised Learning, published in NeurIPS 2022 mm. by Millet, probably Millet, I'm guessing. If Juliette you're all the French. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. Mm -hmm. And Charlotte Cachetot and yourself as senior author. Um, and we want to start with this one because um, this is one of the one of the first papers from from your group in which you kind of establish um these correspondences between large language models and neural activity right yeah so so there were prep papers uh, uh before before this one that that showed some uh similarities between um deep nets and and the brain so perhaps i'm i'm going to backtrack just a little bit um sure so maybe maybe just for the anecdotes, when when I was a student uh, back in the day, and I think this idea continued to be true for for a while, the the notion of an artificial neural network was really considered to be metaphorical. It's like we say, okay, we speak about artificial neural networks, but these are just this is just a loose analogy. This this has nothing to do with what the brain does. These artificial neurons are just sort of computational units that were kind of inspired from neuroscience, but really they, they don't work in the same way. And I think this has switched uh, or pivoted radically in the field around 2014, where uh, several labs, uh, especially coming from Vision, started to compare deep nets to uh, brain activity. Um, so you had the lab from uh, Nicolas Krieger-Skorte, from Marcel Van Gerven, from James DiCarlo, from Bertrand Thirion, which pretty much all simultaneously compared the uh, brain responses to images, uh, to the activations of 
uh, AlexNet, which was uh, sort of one of the landmarks in computer vision uh, models, and 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 thereafter VGG19, uh, which is another uh, another computer vision model. And what they show is that you, with some fancy linear algebra, uh, either based on so-called RSA or uh, linear mapping, they show that you can find similar type of activations in the brain and in the deep net. So if you present an image to the algorithm, the algorithm sort of combine the pixel together, creates uh, new activation uh, in order to identify whether there is a cat or a dog in the image. And when you present the same image to participants and you measure them with fMRI, or in the case of monkey electrophysiology, you, you record their spiking activity, you can see that basically you can find biological neurons or voxels which respond similarly to different images to, um, to the uh, artificial neurons in the deep net. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of friction at the time, uh, but I think people started to understand that perhaps these deep nets, which were algorithms, m- may transform visual inputs to some extent in the same way as as a brain. Uh, and and so we should not think of those as just a metaphorical model, but perhaps we can actually start to think of those as as useful model for for the neuroscience of vision and around those years and many other fields uh, tried uh, a similar idea in other domains in the domain of spatial navigations for hippocampal pace cells and, uh, and and grid cells in the case of motor control in the case of uh, auditory uh, processing um, and in the case of language and speech. And so we sort of fit, uh, I think, in, in, in the group with this general tendency of, of a systematic comparison between depending algorithms and, and the brain and to try to, to see whether indeed uh, these uh, algorithms generate representations, activate themselves similarly to the brain in response to the same uh, sentences, in response to the same sounds. Uh-huh. And so that was sort of the starting point. But the, um, the, one of the motivation behind the work was, um, to insist on, on some potential differences. And, and in the case of language, the, one of the key differences that is very quickly obvious is that first language models work in the text domain. Uh, so the input is, is already sort of a word. It's not quite a word. It's a token. So it can think of this as, as a morpheme, really. Uh, it's a, it's a subword unit. And uh, so that's first difference. And the second difference is that they, they get trained with just a gigantic amount of data. If you train them with a small amount of data, they just perform extremely poorly. Um, and so in this particular work that we've done with Juliette Millet and Charlotte Cocheteau, we're trying to, th- to, to test whether we could go towards more biologically plausible architecture that are trained with uh, the raw audio waveform and uh, with a sensible amount of, of data. And uh, for this, we we uh, focused on um, an algorithm that was developed at Meta, actually, by uh, Alexei Bayeski, uh, uh, who, who used to be a colleague of mine uh, and, and, and his group. And it's called uh, Wave2Vec2. It's an algorithm which is input with a waveform, and it tries to do two things. It tries to predict missing bits of sounds, uh, a bit similar to a, to a language model, where you try to predict the, the next bit given the context. Mm-hmm. But it also tries, and that's that makes the whole thing much more complicated, it also tries to learn what should be predicted in the first place. So you have this sort of dual goal 
in, in the algorithm. You need to learn to predict and you need to learn what should be predicted. And it's this dual goal, uh, which is sort of uh, very hard to, uh, to optimize. Um, and so, yeah, so, so we thought, okay, maybe that's a, a plausible candidate because now we can train an algorithm with a raw, uh, speech waveform without supervision. And with, uh, we tested in this case, uh, to train the, we train the algorithm with, uh, 600 hours of, of speech data, which is very roughly, uh, about a year exposure of speech for, for a human being. Well, it depends on how talkative the parents are, right? Exactly. Yeah. Um, it depends. But, <laughs> it depends on a lot of things. But, teenage, but, but okay. uh, teenage. Yeah. yeah absolutely. Yeah. Um, so yeah. So I'm seeing like there's a couple of different innovative aspects. Like you know, you're doing you're doing it on the raw audio signal rather than on the tokenized transcribed language. Um, you're doing it with a, a smaller amount of training data rather than training the large language model on like the entire internet and all of the history of all human thought. Um. Mm. Those I understand, and then the the one that I don't fully understand from your from reading your paper is the self supervised aspect, which you just mm. kind of alluded to there. Um, so I don't understand what that means um, for okay. it to be learning what it needs to learn. I was wondering if you'd be able to explain that. Yeah, so uh, let me try to unpack this. So perhaps the the best thing to do is to start with uh, what it is not. Right, language models like GPT, uh, they are unsupervised. Right, you don't need to have a human uh, labeler that says this is what you should do for this sentence. This is what you should do for this sentence. So the way this works is to try to predict missing bits of the data. In the case of GPT, the missing bit is always the last word given the context. So it's basically trying to do autocomplete next word prediction. Um, and it's without supervision because you can just roll over Wikipedia or the entire internet to try to predict what is the next word given the 2000 preceding uh, tokens or 2000 preceding words. Um, and so that's non-supervised. But what should be predicted here is determined by the experimenter. We ask the algorithm to predict the word level or in this case, the subword level, but it's, it's a fixed, uh, it's a fixed level of representations. What we don't ask the algorithm to do is to predict, for instance, the next idea, right? Or, uh, the, the next uh, narrative structure, right? We, we ask it a very concrete and well-defined goal, which is what is the uh, next word? And the reason of why we do this is because it's very well defined. We, we actually know the ground truth. Uh, so we, if, if we go and check, we, we can say the next word X actually, uh, X or Y, uh, and not Z as, as you predicted. So for instance, if you have once upon a that starts in a sentence, you ask the algorithm to make a prediction. What is going to be the next word? Is it going to be table? Is it going to be dog? Is it going to be time? And the algorithm has to guess that it's more likely to be time than dog because once upon a dog is unlikely uh, given the uh, the corpus with which it's been trained. Mm-hmm. So it's well defined. But as soon as um, you go in other modalities, and that's the case for vision, it's a case for audio, you realize that this approach is not uh, practical. Uh, so in the case of vision, if you try to predict the next pixel be- given all preceding pixels, um, at the beginning, you do quite well. So if you have, a, let's say, the first half of your image and the beginning is a zebra, uh, what the algorithm will try to learn is to predict, okay, this is a black stripe, so I'm going to try to continue the, the black stripe. And then it should probably be a, a, a white stripe 
so I'm going to go white. But then it becomes non, non-determined. And so what it's going to try to do is basically to try to predict something which is, uh, half of the time black, half of the time white. And so it's going to predict, uh, basically gray, which is the wrong prediction. And the reason for this is because what it should be doing is to try to predict a higher level feature, not defined in a deterministic, deterministic fashion, sorry, uh, mm-hmm. at the pixel level, but determined at a higher level, uh, level uh, which is in this case the, the notion of, of texture or, or stripe. And so, in the case of vision, uh, people I think have understood f- for a while that staying uh, or forcing the algorithm to make prediction at the level of the inputs is uh, not practical. Uh, same for the audio. Like if you try to predict the next amplitude of the waveform, which is sampled at 44 uh, kilohertz, uh, that's going to be very, very painful um, mm. because you, you're doing this job. Like it, it takes a lot of compute just to predict every single sub millisecond. Yep. Uh, and so what is uh, being done these days, uh, this one possible path, uh, which I think is, is promising, is this idea of self-supervision. So in the case of self-supervision, you also learn the level of representation which has a chance to be uh, uh, corrected, uh, to, to be predicted uh, accurately. Um, so to take the example of the zebra and the, and, and the stripe, basically you ask the algorithm to find a representation such that you can predict uh, accurately what's going to uh, be in the next 10, 100, 1000 pixels. Um, Right. And so, so in the case of, of speech here, that's precisely what happens. It's a, it's a deep net which, uh, for which, uh, you, you input the audio waveform. The audio waveform is transformed. And then at some level, it, it generates, a, a, a categorical representation, a quantized representation. Mm-hmm. And then the deep net continues, uh, with a transformer. And the transformer, the goal of the transformer is to predict this middle, uh, representation that, uh, it learned in the first place. And there are trivial solutions to, to this uh, problem, which is to, for instance, predict a constant values or just predicting v- zeros all the time. And so you have tricks to try to uh, avoid uh, this collapse. Uh, and, and those tricks are basically contrastive learning uh, tricks. So you, you try to uh, make a prediction such that uh, if you have several uh, elements in, in your batch, you would, you would find the, the, right, uh, the right prediction uh, amongst the different uh, elements, which prevents pre- predicting the same thing all the time. So perhaps this is going too much into the details, but the basic idea is that the uh, standard, uh, let's say, Autoregressive and uh, VAE uh, models, they are evaluated at the end of the day at uh, a fixed level of representation, uh, which is determined by the experimenter, whereas the self-supervised learning algorithm, they have to not only learn to predict, but they also have to learn what level of representations uh, are likely to be uh, to be predicted. So it's a dual dual problem, which is uh, harder to, to learn. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a great explanation. I think I understand it a lot better. Um, so what, how big are these chunks that end up getting predicted? Like, are they at the level of phonemes or morphemes? Like where, or, or is that, can you think about it that way or no? So they are defined in, as, with a time constant. Uh, so they're not defined functionally. So I, I don't think we can directly associate them with phonemes or morphemes or words. Uh, but what we can say that they are in the order of 100, 200 milliseconds. So they are slightly below the phonetic unit. 
Hmm. And uh, there have been a lot of experiments on on what level of like what time scale should be wow. best uh, for for this uh, learning as um, evaluated with downstream tasks. If after this you, you do uh, let's say uh, a speech to text task, do you get better by training with longer or, or, or smaller units? And and the authors have, have converged on this relatively small uh, temporal scale. And I think this is this has to do with the fact that the algorithm learns only one level of representation. So it's, it's not predicting at the raw waveform, it's predicting at a higher level, but it's still one level of, of, of representation that it's trying to predict, mm-hmm. uh, which is around the phonetic level. But we touched mm-hmm. on, on this issue a, a bit um, in, in a different in a different uh, article with Charlotte Kouchouter actually uh, in a paper that was recently published in uh, Nature Human Behavior, which is uh, yeah we can talk about really that tapping on, onto this idea. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. I mean, maybe these things are about the size of syllables if they're that length. Maybe they're a little shorter than syllables. Um, okay. So. So then in this paper, we're talking about the the NeurIPS 2022 paper. Um, you then show um, which brain areas, um, in which brain areas can these predicted representations track with the bold responses um, after suitable convolution with the HRF. Um, can you tell us um, what you see there? Sure, yeah. So, so what we try to do is to quantify these functional similarity between the deep net and uh, each voxel uh, with a linear mapping. So basically what we do is we learn a regression from the activations of the deep net to uh, the uh, voxel activations to try to see whether uh, we could, we can accurately predict whether the voxel is going to be high or low given the speech sound, uh, given the activations of, of the deep nets. And that's a pretty standardized uh, approach uh, these days, which was, I mean, it's GLMs in fMRI are really based on this idea, but uh, then they were formalized uh, for this goal in, in the paper by um, uh, Jack Gallant and, and uh, Nazir Alice uh, in, I think, two, 2011. So mm-hmm. the method is basically linear algebra. Uh, I'm not going to go too much into the details, but it gives us one number, which is for each voxel, how similar is it to uh, the activations of, of the deep net? And the first thing that uh, we do is that we do this similarity analysis for each layer of the deep net. So the deep net is organized hierarchically. So we have the first layer, which just take the, the raw waveform. And this uh, representation is passed onto a second layer, which again transforms the representation, which is passed to a third layer, and so on and so forth. And so for each layer, we have a set of activations that we can compare to each voxel. And what we observe is that uh, different voxels in the brain are more or less similar to different layers in the deep net. And the striking observation when you look at the the, the overall result is how structured this uh, similarity is. So if you look yeah. at A1 responses, you basically get activations which are most similar to the very early layers of the transformer in the deep net. And the further away you go from A1, and the more the activation that are being recorded with uh, fMRI gets uh, similar to deeper and deeper layers in the deep net, such that if you go to temporal pole or to uh, the temporal parietal junction or the prefrontal areas, you end up with voxels which are most similar to the deepest layers in uh, Wave2Vec2. Mm-hmm. 
And it's very, it's what is really striking is how monotonous this relationship is. It's like the further you are, uh, from A1, from a sort of a direct path, uh, uh, distance, the, the, the more your, the representations, uh, appear to be similar to deeper and deeper layers in, in the algorithm. Um, yeah. If I can that, just that share means, like the, yeah, just to kind of try and help our, you know, audio listeners visualize it. I mean, this is figure three in the paper. Um, and I, to me, it resembles like kind of concentric circles coming out of A1, right? So in A1, you've got prediction being most successful from the, like you said, the earliest layers that are most superficial, most similar to the input. And then like, as you said, the further you go out, it's almost like these concentric rings as you go mm. into the temporal lobe and into the inferior parietal lobe. So like the angular gyrus, it kind of gets to further and, you know, deeper and deeper layers but it's not completely concentric because it doesn't just randomly go into the insula and it doesn't just randomly go into the sensory motor strip, right? It very much goes out into the temporal and inferior parietal regions and, and also frontal, um, Absolutely. which is ki kind of non-contiguous, the frontal. So it's it's very much like you said, like it's, it's a beautiful figure, by the way. It's like the heart of the paper, um, but it's obviously capturing like something pretty basic about the structure of the language system absolutely i was i mean when i saw this this figure when we were playing with the data i was instantly shocked i was like wow you don't usually get this in, in fmri like my experience with fmri before is you get like this contrast between i don't know jabberwocky and uh meaningful text and you end up with a blob uh, or let's say a, a set of blobs which are different uh, depending on the contrast and it's very difficult to make sense of, of, of these things whereas here the map is remarkably smooth and and and, and, and continuous and, and simple to to describe in, in a sense and I think the reason for this is because we are working with a, a large number of, of participants uh, that were made available uh, from different groups um, so in this case, I think there were a bit more than 400 uh, participants listening to natural stories. Uh, and it's really the, the big numbers that, that I think allow uh, retrieving this, um, this uh, very simple, uh, simple structuring of, of the uh, language processing in the brain. But it's not just a concentric circle either, because if you look at the prefrontal cortex, you have this very interesting sort of gradients within the prefrontal cortex where you have a stripe that starts from the motor and premotor areas and goes towards uh, IFG. And within uh, the infrafrontal gyrus, you also have some, some gradients, which I think could make sense in light of anatomy, uh, hmm. because we know that dif different parts projects to, to different uh, different parts of IFG projects uh, through the white matter tracks to, to different parts of the temporal lobes. And if you pay cl close attention, you, you'll see that this actually match with our expectations. So it's it's a very uh, yeah, striking uh, figure, I, I, I find. Uh, yeah. Because, yep. so not only because visually, but also because of what, what this means. Um, so when I listened to my previous... Uh, Postdoc advisor David Popple, uh, I uh, sometimes I hear him sort of criticize the whole approach on being too too uh, technical and too fancy and sort of forgetting the ideas. But here, uh, and the criticism being that okay, but these are models with billions of parameters, and you're just doing a, a huge regression, and we don't understand anything in there. But here, what I find really striking is that the optimization function is very simple to describe, right? It's just one equation. You say, you have two things to do, you have to learn to predict, and you have to learn what should be predicted. And 
this is the goal, right? And this is sort of the essence of it all. And if you do uh, feed the algorithm, if you force the algorithm to to optimize this function, then it naturally comes up with a hierarchy of representations, which seems to uh, to provide a, a very strong structure, or at least a it's a seemingly uh, um, sim- or simple enough uh, organization of, of speech processing in, in the brain, and to me, that's yeah, quite yeah, quite stri- striking. Yeah, no, it's I mean, it's not overly complicated when it. Well, I mean, I think it's probably very complicated to implement, um, but like you said, there there is a simplicity to it as well, and um, when it gives you a result that makes sense, it's definitely reassuring. Um, you know, I'm I was a little bit like you mentioned in the paper too, like that you do interpret these gradients in the frontal areas as well. And I, I looked at it a bit and I was like, you know, I, I think you might have to like do a bit of convincing for me there because I, I do, I get it with the temporal, the temporal parietal thing is just pristine. And, and, you know, it's not like, it's not like trivial either because, you know, there was like, you know, big debates between like, you know, Greg Hickok and Sophie Scott, for instance, as to whether the predominant direction of processing in the temporal lobe was headed like anteriorly or posteriorly from, mm from a1 and your data basically shows um well there's no winner there they're actually both right because it's going in both directions um so you know i do think it's actually address you know this data is not just a pretty picture it's it, it does address like open questions but i'm not totally convinced about the frontal um gradients like i think i i'm not sure if you have more data that might sort of prove that those are replicable and and meaningful and related to the connectivity in some way that's Makes sense. Mm. No, I think it's it's just an, it's just a hunch. So is, this is just a first study. Um, we did not look for these gradients in the prefrontal cortex. We just observed them. Uh, in retrospect, I think they, they, they make kind of sense in from an, uh, an anatomical point of view. And let's take one example in the case of the motor cortex. So I'm not I'm not coming as I said in beginning of this uh, of this conversation. I don't have a background in a new biology of language. I don't have. I'm not a strong defendant on, let's say, motor theory of language. I, to me, it was kind of a, of a story, like we have many stories in, in science and in cognitive science in particular. Um, and so first of all, seeing that you had strong activation in the motor cortex, you was like, okay, that's, maybe, maybe there is something to this story. And then to, to see that the representation in the motor cortex appear to be lower level than the representation that we observe in the premotor areas, in the SMA, uh, yeah. uh, I think that's that's also okay. going the right direction, now. right? It, it, it could have been it could have been the other way. Uh, I, I see it. I missed it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've got like earlier. You've got an, uh, you've got a lower layer response in um, this sort of dorsal part of ventral premotor cortex, um, which matches up to this area that, like my friend Eddie Chang, who I, you're probably familiar with. His work, you know, so he has this this paper from 2016. Um, I think it's oh, I, I the first author is I think Chung, um, where they show that that area up there. Do you know the paper I'm talking about? It has like auditory I properties. I think it's neocortex of larynx. Um, is it, is that well, correct? that's not what they say, but they kind of show that it's basically an auditory area. This paper is published in um some good journal. I forget which one. <laughs> But anyway, um, it's um, they, it's 2016, and and they show that that area basically has auditory properties. Like it, it doesn't really behave like a motor area; it behaves like an auditory area. And so, yeah, now I see it. I didn't see it when I was looking at this before, but yeah, that's out of all your frontal areas, that's the one that's like 
um, linked up to the earliest layers in your model. So you're capturing the fact mm. that that's more of a sensory area and then the more prefrontal regions are high, uh, deeper. So yeah, okay, I, I, buy it. I buy it now. And <laughs> I'm not trying to sell it, but uh, <laughs> the, the other, the other, the, the first time I think I encountered these, these motor activation, I mean, it's, again, it's pretty recent given that I'm a newcomer in the field, but uh, was, was with MEG. So when we do the source reconstruction with MEG, we also see very early on activation in the motor areas. Uh, and at the beginning, I was a bit suspicious because I thought perhaps it's just a source reconstruction uh, issue. But now we actually see it also in intracranial uh, recordings and here with fMRI. So I think all of these different uh, sort of pieces of evidence point toward a, a similar a similar finding. So clearly it's, it's just to me, it's just a beginning, right? It's, these are again, these are just activation. These are just correlation. We don't know how uh, important this activation will turn out to be, and I think the uh, lesion studies and all this remain completely uh, uh, relevant. But it's it's the simplicity of the overall organization revealed by this by this mapping, which uh, strikes me at first, and 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 think I I really think of this as okay. Now we can uh, see a bit better how how the language network is is structured uh, to process to process language. But everything remains to be to be done and to be uh, investigated more thoroughly in in light of lesion studies and anatomy and individual variations. Yeah, sure. But yeah, this is a good. This is definitely um, a good ground rock to build on yeah definitely recommend that everybody checks out that figure um so can we can we move on to the next paper or do you want to say anything more about this one I, it's it's, uh, it's 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 your podcast <laughs> <laughs> okay i just i do my best to structure things but you know I, um there's one thing that i can say here uh because it, again i was i was surprised and i think in retrospect i shouldn't have been given what was said in the literature, but I was still surprised. So when we do this comparison between, in this case, Wav2Vec2 and the brain, we obtain a similarity score. And as I mentioned, we, we do it for each layer and we find this, this, this structure. And then the rest of the paper really goes much more in depth in uh, like what kind of learning strategy uh, leads to more or less uh, uh, high similarity scores. Uh, so we train wave 2 on, on speech, on non-speech, on speech from a different language that the, that the participants uh, 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 were exposed to and so on. And the striking thing to me at, at the time was that if you take a random covnet, you already get very high uh, similarity scores. You get at least 70% of the variance explained from the best uh, from the best model. And at the beginning, I thought this was we did something wrong. There is something uh, like a, a mistake in our pipeline and all this. But I think it, it was already uh, so. It, it was already uh, described as such in different papers, including the paper by Kellen McDermott from uh, 2017 in Neuron. Uh, it just was not necessarily emphasized, and I think in retrospect we. Perhaps we, we should not forget about this, that even an architecture which is not trained actually uh, uh, has representations which uh, linearly map onto the brain just simply because of the of the uh, convolutional and hierarchical structure of, of the network. You, you already get sort of a, a very good first step. And so the, the learning there uh, comes as a... Uh, something which will increase the similarity, but it's it's clearly not the only thing uh, which makes the the model similar to the to the brain. Okay, I, I, yeah, I had, that was one of the things that I was I had written down to ask you. Um, so I'm glad you went back to it. 
um, was why does the untrained model succeed at all? Um, but I still don't really understand why based on what you just said, because, um, you know, what is it, why does, why would the structure of the model be enough to make it match up to bold fMRI data? So I, I don't know. I do not know, uh, why. Uh, and again, here are some, only some intuitions. The, the way I think of this is that, uh, sound is, is structured in time. And so if you apply uh, a mathematical operation which preserves uh, the temporal uh, components, you will generate a representation, a new representation, in a sense that it's uh, an information which was not linearly uh, readable before, but is now uh, linearly uh, readable. You, you, will, uh, you, you, will learn, you will have something uh, uh, which is not completely uh, random. And so the way... I mean, What's the best way to explain this? The the way I, I see uh, representation learning or, or learning in general is that you need to find uh, combinations of features which are most usable uh, to act on the world, right? To or to predict what's going to happen. Um, and this combination has to be structured, but space and time basically provide you with very strong inductive biases. So convolution in space or convolution in time uh, preserve the uh, temporal or the spatial uh, uh, structure. And so when you do these uh, non-linearities in between layers, you learn more and more um, complex, uh, or you, you generate more and more complex representations. And if they are sort of biased towards preserving temporal or spatial structure, even the random ones may be a good start uh, as opposed to uh, just completely uh, scatter or, or, or shatter the, the 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 information. So that's that's how I I, I think of this. But I the, the truth is that again I I do not know why it works so so well with the uh, the random networks. Do the random networks also replicate this kind of almost concentric structure that we were talking about? They they have uh, they have a bit of it yeah but it's less strong than the uh, you, than than what we observed with wave to vector. Could it be that the temporal receptive field increases as you go deeper in the layers, even in the random in the untrained network? Would would that be a potential explanation? So, wave to vector is organized into two bricks, right? There are uh, there is a first deep net which is convolutional and so here the deeper you go in the network and and the more uh, the larger the temporal receptive field of of each unit simply because the each unit is having its own receptive field so it's built hierarchically so naturally you get this uh, this gradient but in the transformer uh, there is no such thing so you need to 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 learn to build a larger and larger receptive field because the transformer basically sees it all like even the first uh, layer is able to to combine all of the tokens from uh, anywhere in the context, but uh, learning will bias the. In practice, this is what we observe. Learning will bias the first layers to focus on what's happening nearby uh, from a positional embedding point of view, and so they will naturally build smaller receptive fields. Fields, whereas the deeper layer will tend to learn uh, a larger receptive fields. But in principle, if you take a, a random transformer, um, then you do not have this uh, this uh, bias uh, okay. implemented. So it couldn't explain that. It could only explain sort of asymmetries in the convolutional layers, not in the transformer layers. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So there's still some things to understand here. Um, okay. 
talk to them about. Let's talk about the next paper, yeah? Um, sure. This one's called Brains and Algorithms Partially Converge in Natural Language Processing by mm-hmm. um, Charlotte Casciuto and yourself um, in Communications Biology 2022. Um, and this one, I think that the essential um, step forward of this one is to show how this convergence between the models and the brain is really driven by the ability of the models to predict. Um, so that the, the prediction is what explains success. Is, is that like a fair way to summarize its main point? Yeah, I think the main result is that the... So the, the question that we ask is what, what factors leads an algorithm to be uh, more or less similar to, to the brain? And so we already tapped onto this, this question just through the previous question. Uh, and so, okay, so we observe uh, a, f- a functional mapping between uh, language models uh, and the brain, and we see that some models correlate better with the brain, some models correlate less, less with the brain. Um, and in the literature, uh, what uh, was not clear is what make, made an algorithm uh, more or less similar to the brain because they varied in pretty much everything, right? So if you compare GPT-2 and BERTs and, uh, I don't know, LSTMs and all this that are available uh, online, they, they have different architectures. They've been trained with a different objective, with different optimizers, with different databases, with different size of databases. Um, and so you don't really know if let's say GPT-2 is working better than any other algorithm is because it's a better architecture, it's because it's been trained with more data uh, or, or because of some other factors. And so uh, when uh, when we had released, so we released this, this uh, study uh, the same week as a study from uh, Martin Schrimpf and, and F. Fedorenko mm-hmm. um, where they did this kind of mapping with the uh, the uh, existing models like uh, BERT and, and GPT-2 and Roberta and all of this zoo of, uh, of models available. And so the, they came to a similar conclusion that uh, the, the seems that one variable that predicts very well whether a model will be similar to the brain or not is its ability to uh, to, to predict the, the next one. So we're really happy to see that Two independent labs sort of come to the to the same conclusion. Okay, let me um, let me just say that again, just yeah. to make it real clear, because I think that's so important. Like that, that there's many different ways, there's many different model architectures you can consider, and many different parameters you can vary. Um, but the biggest factor that predicts whether a model is going to do a good job of matching the brain is how well it can predict the next word in that sense in which all of these models are set up because now we've kind of gone back to talking about text-based models right so we're not right. we're not we're not working with the audio auditory I'm, signal anymore I'm, we're back in sort of classic by which i mean like the last two years um <laughs> large language models where it's word prediction okay so absolutely. go on yeah and so that's sort of the the main result and i think the whole how, how do we how do we know about this? So again, what we did is uh, we analyzed fMRI data, but also magnetoencephalography data, which were recorded by Jan Matthias Schofelen at the at the Dundas Institute. Um, and in this uh, in this study, participants had to read uh, sentences 
in a heavy decontextualized fashion. So you only have a sentence and then you have a five second delay and then it's another sentence which has nothing to do with the previous sentence. So it's, it's quite different from the, from the, yeah. let's say, the previous study and when people are listening to, to, to podcasts on our Yeah, this is an RSVP par- paradigm, right? Rapid serial visual yeah. presentation. So, yeah. Absolutely. So it's a reading, reading task. Um, um, and so the question that we had is, okay, so what drives an algorithm or language model, to be more precise, to be more or less uh, similar to the brain? And so what Charlotte did is basically to retrain a lot of different architectures that are based on the GPT-2 architecture, based on uh, BERT architecture. Um, she tried to vary uh, the depth of the transformer, uh, how many activation units there are for each layers, uh, how many attentional gates there are. And so she really did sort of a systematic grid search there. And for each model, for each embedding, uh, you can get one value, which is, okay, how similar is it to the brain after a given uh, training? And then you can just fit this to an ANOVA. In this case, we use a non-parametric uh, analysis, but in, in, in principle, it's the idea. As you say, amongst all of those factors, amongst the the depth of the architecture, the width of the architecture, the, the number of attentional gates, what we ask the algorithm to do and all this, which variable uh, contributes to make uh, a better brain score, uh, a similarity which is uh, uh, increased in, with regards to brain activations. And as soon as we have one variable, which is the performance of the model to uh, to predict the next word, it basically sucks up all of the variance. So uh, the ability of the algorithm to predict the next word, no matter how big the network or how deep the network, uh, this ability suffices to uh, predict whether the model uh, will turn out to be uh, more or less similar to, to the brain. And that was very... Yeah, intriguing in some sense. And we did not necessarily uh, anticipate that the other variables would have such a, a small contribution. They are all significant. Again, we're working with uh, a lot of participants there. I think it's uh, 100, 100 participants uh, for fMRI and, and same for, for MEG. Yeah. Um, so basi- basically all of the variables have a statistical significance, but but they're really small as compared to uh, to, to this uh, next word prediction uh, effect. Uh, and that suggests one thing, which is that uh, the behavior or the, the task of the model is really what matters. And then uh, the architecture and, and the attentional gates and numbers of layers and all this, these are really uh, means to towards that 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 task. Uh, and and if you can do this task, then uh, basically even if you're a small network, that's that should suffice to to represent things similarly to the brain. So does that make you think that the brain is engaged in predictive coding or do or do you think that um to get the next word right you need to develop good representations of language? Um I don't think so for either either questions. So I think the first thing that it says is that the we should we should take this uh, seriously and and not spend perhaps too much time on on the architecture. Uh and, and trying to sort of pinpoint exactly what the, 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 the relevance of a particular layer in learning uh, intelligent representations, but rather towards the, the goal. And in this case, the goal is indeed next word prediction uh, or, or word completion. Um, and this is the goal that basically drives drives the, the, uh, the, the rise of 
uh, smart representation instead of representation that can be useful for something else. Whether the brain does follow the same uh, principle, I very much doubt it. Um, and the main reason here is that unlike language models, we, we, we are not exposed with uh, the same amount of, of words. So we, we cannot uh, just rely on trying to predict the next word because in our lifetime, we don't just hear a sufficient number of words to, to complete this task. So it's very interesting in, in, in the, over the past uh, 60 years, there's been a lot of debate, right? On what needs to be uh, innate, what can be yeah. acquired in the context of language. Uh, and there were a lot of arguments on really sort of math, math based arguments saying, no, but it's just not possible to learn the structure of language, to learn syntax with a uh, simple exposure conclusion. You need to have an innate bias for, let's say, recursive structures if we go uh, towards generative grammar. Um, and I think now it's, it's pretty clear. And this has been argued, for instance, by, uh, Stephen Piantadodis, uh, that's, this argument is clearly wrong. Like, uh, language models now can process, uh, language. They can retrieve syntactic structure, uh, and they are trained with a, a huge amount of data. Um, and so statistics, let's say, only, uh, suffices to, 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 uh, to, to learn the structures of language. But now this perhaps clarified the debate on saying that, okay, maybe it's possible, but the whole point with that this requires a huge amount of data, data that we thought before were just not accessible. And I think that's also why people got it wrong is that it was not conceivable that we could feed an algorithm with so much text. Um, and so now that this has been proven, the question still remains. This is okay with relatively small amounts of uh, word exposure, uh, what uh, computational architecture or perhaps what objective suffice uh, to, to learn uh, language efficiently. And my strong conviction is that uh, uh, next word prediction is, is not the right uh, objective because, again, we don't hear a sufficient number of, of, of words per day. So just as a sort of rough estimation, like the few studies that I could find uh, suggested around uh, 13,000 words a day, it varies immensely across uh, across individuals, depending if you're a teenager, if you're a child, if you're uh, depending on your social class and, and everything. Uh, but the, the average was 13,000 words a day, um, which fits within 50 books a year, right? Yeah. So 50 books a year, uh, and then we can decide how many years of, of language you want for language acquisition. But basically, it's, uh, it's going to be in the order of a 500 books if really we want to take a, a large margin. And GPT-4 now is, we don't actually have the exact numbers, but they trained on hundreds of millions of books. Yeah. Uh, so it's just orders and orders of magnitudes uh, higher. Um, and so clearly we missed uh, something fundamental here. The objective uh, that these algorithms are trained with, this next word prediction objective, they just... I mean, they, clearly they work at scale, and this is very impressive. Like everyone, I'm, I'm amazed uh, every six months by the the new power of of, uh, of deep learning and and, and language mod models in particular. But still, we have to recognize that there is something extremely inefficient uh, there. Like they require an, an amount of data uh, which uh, is just uh, ridiculous as compared to what children uh, children do. And so, I think the the historic question remains, uh, and, and 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 clearly, the we haven't solved this problem yet. And so, I'm still 
very excited by this. So this was a long yeah. tangent towards yeah, it's a good, <laughs> to answer uh, your question. But but your question was about this next word prediction uh, question, which is is this is this at the end of the day what we do? I don't think this is what we do because we don't, language we don't, models. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Require well, so you're, too yeah. much data for it for this rule to succeed. Well, even I mean, yeah. So you're answering it from a learning perspective, um, and that's a very interesting tangent for sure. I could, a lot of things I could go follow up on there. I mean, cause, well, for one, just quickly, like you know, you, you you can't. It's not even sufficient to be able to learn from what the average child receives, right? You have to be able to learn from what the the um, you know the child in the poor environment, because because people can learn even in very impoverished environments. So it's kind of, I mean, it's got to be able to deal with like maybe 10% of like what would be normal and still the kids will acquire language with no problem. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can, we can tighten our hands in, in the back to make, to make the, the challenge even, even more difficult. But even, even with, let's say, rich environments, the amount of data that we are exposed to is ridiculously small uh, yeah. as compared to, to language models. So we don't even need to go into the extreme cases. But but, no. but I certainly agree that children have a natural bias for for babbling, for, for learning uh, languages. This is uh, obviously something that we do not see in, in other species. And even after heavy training, we don't manage to, to train uh, gorillas or chimps to, to learn, for instance, sign language. Uh, or at least whatever they learn is extremely poor as compared to, to what children are, are able to acquire in, in, a, in a couple of years. And so clearly there is an algorithm, there is an objective or an architecture which allows uh, to learn language extremely efficiently. I think this is what Chomsky and, and many others uh, had in mind uh, in, in the theory. And so uh, I think this, this uh, line of thought uh, remains uh, extremely relevant and we should not mm -hmm. dismiss it just because we have now language models that work at scale it, it depends again on the objective if the objective is just to have an ai system that learns uh, to to process language at any cost sure we've we've arrived there and and this is done and so perhaps we don't need uh, uh generative grammars and 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 and, and theory um, but if the question is how do we learn how do what are the uh, rules or principles that suffice to learn efficiently there i think that we are just at the at the beginning we haven't we haven't found it yet at least yeah yeah i agree um there's something in this paper that's interesting to me when I and and Shrimp et al. who you mentioned did the same thing, right? Which is that they quantify when when you're doing these model comparisons, you kind of need like a nice simple objective way of talking about how well the models fit the brain, and they use this concept of a noise ceiling, which you do too. And so the noise ceiling is um, basically it's how well you can predict one participant's brain from the other participants' brains. So it's like kind of intersubject correlation analysis. And the idea would be like, well, we can never hope to predict from a language model what isn't kind of shared among all humans, right? There's always going to be like individual variability in people's bold activation. So it's unfair to make the model try and capture that, right? The model can only possibly capture what is shared among all humans. So the, so the correct denominator when you're evaluating performance is how well can you predict one person from other people? Okay. Did I say that right? Yeah. Um, and so in Shrimp et al, I know they get very close to a hundred, they say very close to a hundred percent. Like these models are predicting almost everything that can be predicted by other, um, from other humans. Do, do you get that in yours as well? Or, or no, I don't, I don't really 
I didn't get that from your paper, whether yours was like no. that too. No, we don't get that, but there are, so there are, there is a, a first uh, major difference, which is that in Shrimp Federal, they focus on the, on the 10% best voxels. Uh, so they, for each of the 10 uh, individuals that they analyze, I think it's mm-hmm. 10, maybe it's seven, I forgot. Um, they take the 10% best voxels and then they do the whole analysis on this. And so that's quite different from what we do in the sense, okay. because we, we, we do the analysis on, on, on all voxels. Uh, that would explain. I think that would be enough to explain the difference. Yeah. So that's the first difference. The second difference is that the noise ceiling that they use is based on an, an extrapolation. So if you sort of go carefully in, in the method, they extrapolate. Okay, if we add more participants, can we expect to have a noise ceiling which ramps up more or less uh, quickly? And and they derive the noise ceiling from this uh, sort of a projection. Um, and, 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 and we don't do this. We just take the whole cohort and we say, okay, this is uh, the, the noise ceiling. We don't try to extrapolate. If we had a cohort of a thousand participants, we would we, we get something uh, better. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've had a lot of push, pushback in noise ceilings of, over the years. I think it's a bit less the case now, but the first studies were really hard on this because we were always asked, okay, but you don't, you guys don't provide a, a noise ceilings. Participants never hear the same sentence twice. And so we don't know how much violence is explained and therefore uh, we reject the, the, the paper. Uh, and I, I find this, I, f- I find, I think this is missing the point. So I think noise ceilings can be useful, right? Because it gives us an estimate how good, how good we are. But in many cases in, in the data that we've analyzed, we actually have models that work better than the noise ceiling that we build. Um, and this, this is for an obvious reason, which is that when we train to predict brain activity from a given subject, given all of the subjects, all of the subjects are also noisy. And so you, you, you're learning to predict something from, from a noisy data. And so that's, that can be challenging. And so there are a lot of like arbitrary decisions on how you build this, this noise ceiling. And I said, projection is one thing. The voxel that you select is another thing. Um, whether you base this on repetition or not repetition within subjects, across subjects, all of this. And then you end up, I think, sort of building a whole analysis on something which is not so stable. It, it depends, it depends on, on, on how you choose your noise ceiling. Mm-hmm. And so my, what I tell students is to not care about the noise ceiling whatsoever until the very end. We'll do the noise ceiling at the end. But I think what is reproducible, or at least much more robust, is to provide the actual uh, FX sizes without noise ceiling. So we say, okay, this is our R score on the raw waveform. This is what we, on, on the raw ball signal, on the raw image signal. And this is useful, I think, because if you are another lab, you will also get this this raw signal, and so you can evaluate your model with 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 this kind of, of data, um, and it's it will be easier to to compare across studies than if we have sort of a zoo or different uh, of different uh, uh, noise ceiling. I again, I don't want to dismiss noise ceiling altogether. I think they are useful, but mm-hmm. uh, they are they are they are too many choices at at the moment uh, for them to be uh, to be uh, a must go. Okay. And in the case of language, it's even more the case than in other modalities. So in the case of images, for instance, we know from, again, monkey electrophysiology and a lot of fMRI that if you present um, an image multiple times, uh, most of the activations are similar uh, across repetitions. But we know that in language, it's not the case. If you hear the same sentence twice, we know that, for instance, prefrontal areas are activated less the second time, even less the third time. And this can be 
this this is not just an adaptation effect. You can have a repetition which is with uh, sort of a distractor of multiple minutes in between. You have, for instance, the work of uh, Gislende and Norbert uh, from the early 2000s that that show this. Like if you hear the sentence the second or the third time uh, within the session, um, the prefrontal cortex uh, react a lot less. And I think the reason for this is at least my intuition, but obviously we would need to do a lot of the, uh, studies to to confirm this. But the intuition is that we build uh, language structures on the fly the first time we hear them. But as soon as we know what we mean in a given sentence, we sort of form online these idioms or we sort of can extract the, the meaning without having to, to build the whole syntactic structures and, and, and solve the ambiguities. And so many of the voxels will not uh, have to, or many of the neurons will not have to be recruited basically to to achieve the, the, the same goal. So perhaps it's also the case in vision, but in the case of language, it's particularly, uh, particularly the case. And so noise seeding, the consequence of this is that you cannot present the same sentence multiple times and hope that the participants will process it in the same way. No. And therefore, the very premise of noise ceiling here is uh, jeopardized. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, it's just because language is just more more contextualized. It can't not be contextualized relative to something like looking at a visual scene where you can like look at the visual scene and at least early visual areas will respond the same way. Um, yeah, okay. Do we have time to talk about one more paper? Sure. All right, let's talk about Cachetot et al. 2023. This one's called Evidence of a Predictive Coding Hierarchy in the Human Brain Listening to Speech in Nature Human Behavior. Just came out. Congratulations. Thank you. And this one kind of starts from the premise um, that large language models are not as good at, as humans at processing language. And then you sort of ask why that might be. And you have a a possible explanation in mind, which is that whereas the LLMs are predicting just the next word, um, what humans might be doing is making predictions, longer term predictions than that. Like, so predicting more words and perhaps predicting some kind of hierarchical structure. Um, and I really like the, you start in, in your figure, you have this nice um, sort of layout of the experiment in figure one and the example sentence is great, your paper. And then the, um, the <laughs> prediction is, is not rejected, <laughs> which is what we all hope for with our papers, right? That's the prediction that we want to make, although it's not always Absolutely. borne out. Yeah, yeah. We start from this. Uh, I mean, this resonates with a lot of the of the points that we discussed earlier. But so the, the example that we chose in in this uh, in this figure, which is clearly uh, an inside joke, I'm not sure it's entirely appropriate, but uh, whatever. Uh, is to focus on negation. And, and so um, I very much like negation because it's, to me, a very minimalist example of uh, a very interesting composition. In, in, in the case of uh, a negation, if you say, for instance, it's not rejected, um, you know that you need to combine the words in a nonlinear fashion in order to uh, retrieve the meaning of the, of the phrase or the sentence. If you were just to do a, a linear composition, it would be sort of a bag of words. So you would, at best, you would be able to 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 say that it's some, something about rejection, but you cannot uh, retrieve uh, not rejected. And this is even more uh, obvious when you have a, a slightly more 
complex sentence. So if you say, uh, it is not small and green, and you have another sentence which is, uh, it is small and not green, if you do a linear com combination of this, uh, you won't be able to, to understand the, the meaning because you need to, uh, to know that not is applied to, to uh, one adjective or, uh, or, or specific words and, and not the other. And this representation has to be a nonlinear composition. So that's, that's why we sort of focus on this example. And the idea here is to, um, to focus on this issue that I mentioned earlier, which is that when you try to do this next word prediction, uh, objective, clearly it's scale because you have a lot of data. Uh, but you're not pushing the algorithm to try to learn to predict the next idea. Uh, and so in the case of a, of a composition, we wanted to focus on this. If we say it's great, it means that the following part of the sentence should be something positive. Rejected is a negative, uh, at least from our point of view. It's kind of uh, uh, negatively connoted. Uh, but if it's combined with not, it's fine. You have the right, the right prediction in mind. You, you know it's going to be something positive. You have not rejected uh, in your, let's say, in your validation. And you verify not, not rejected is something positive, And therefore, your, your prediction uh, was correct. Whereas if you had tried to predict, uh, let's say, greater paper is accepted, you would have gotten that wrong because uh, the true word was not and uh, the predicted word was uh, accepted. And so you would have told the, the algorithm, okay, you're completely wrong, try something else. Whereas actually you had the, the, the right uh, the right idea. Mm -hmm. So again, that's a long tangent to, to, come, to come about the same idea, which is that we should try to have algorithms that are do not try to just do autocomplete. If you can do autocomplete, why not? But they also try to predict uh, the next ideas, uh, the next idea perhaps, and then the next hierarchy of ideas because you have structures that unfold of a different uh, timescale, what is going to be said within this constituent, within this sentence, within this paragraph, what is going to, what is the struct narrative structure of, of the story. All of these things are to some extent determined and can be predicted. And so we should optimize these algorithms uh, on this goal as opposed to the sole goal of trying to predict the next word. Yeah. The, the analogy that I, that I have is uh, that I, uh, again, perhaps it's a wrong analogy, but what, when I think of this, I, I, I think of how we would teach a kid to, to ride a bike. And so here, when what we have with language model is, we basically tell the child or the language model to just focus on what's exactly in front of the wheel. Okay, try to predict whether there's going to be a little stone or whether you should turn left or right right now. Just avoid the obstacle, um, which is a very proximal, short-sighted objective. Uh, and of course, you need to do this. If you don't do this, you will fall. But if if we want to, the child or the agent to be intelligent, we also need to say, anticipate your turn, anticipate the, uh, the, how you're gonna, where you're gonna direct your, your, your gaze, and, and ultimately also how do you drive around a city? How do you want to plan your, your route if you want to, to, uh, to go from point A to point B? And of, if you have enough driving experience, perhaps you can do this only by looking at what's exactly in front of your, your wheel, and you will learn every turn of the city. Uh, and I'm, I have no doubt that this is what language models basically do. But that's probably not the, the, the right and the most efficient way to, to learn. And so that's sort of the, the idea here. We should have algorithms that are trained to predict multiple levels of representation and not just hope that these levels of representation will emerge just from the mere amount of data that we feed them with. Yeah. 
So there's so much behind that example, which in the in the paper you just put the example and the figure, and 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 uh, you know, we I don't think you talk about the negation and the unique challenge of it. Um, that that's that's neat. Um, so in the paper you you kind of get a, you address this by introducing a forecast window um, where the models have to predict different numbers of words into the future. Um, can you explain? And that's and the and the hope is to see whether introducing these forecast windows into the model. Um, improves the correspondence between the models and the brains. So can you kind of explain um, how the forecast windows fit into the whole um, architecture? That was a little bit, um, I, I didn't really understand that when I was reading it. Absolutely. Uh, perhaps I should first say that the negation example is something we are pursuing with Ariana and Nadzi uh, in David Popple's lab, so that we have a paper on archive specifically focusing on, on negation, but outside the domain of, of language models. But for those interested in the brain basis of uh, minimalist composition like negations, uh, that's, uh, I think, a, a cool paper to, to have a look at. In, in the, in this paper with Charlotte Cocheteau and Alex Confort, uh, we indeed changed the objective, uh, at least that's the goal. We want to change the objective of a standard language model so that it doesn't just predict the next word, but it potentially forecasts, uh, uh, longer term, uh, representations. And for this, we use two different strategies, uh, independently from one another. Uh, one which is based on linear algebra and the other one which is based on, uh, optimization. So perhaps I can start with the optimization one because it's, I think, simpler, but also uh, a bit less conclusive because it's sort of deep learning magic as opposed to linear algebra, which sort of decomposes things uh, in, in a clear fashion, which is the exact reverse of <laughs> what we did in the paper. But uh, mm -hmm. So in the optimization case, what we take is, uh, what we do is we take GPT-2, um, we train it to predict uh, the next word, and then we take another uh, GPT-2 and we train it to uh, predict the next word and the latent representations of the next words. And I think we take something like the seventh or eighth words after the, the, the current item. So if, for instance, you have once upon a, the first model is trained to predict time and the next model is trying to predict time and what's going to happen in seven words. Mm -hmm. But we know that what's going to happen in seven words is non-deterministic. It's very hard to know uh, what word will be said in seven words from now, just because there are so many uh, possibilities, sort of a forking path problem. Uh, so what we train the algorithm to do is to learn to predict the latent representations of uh, the future words. Uh, not so the actual objectives. words. One, not the actual words, but the latent representation. And so two objectives, one which is proximal, language model, next word prediction, and one which is distant, which is try to predict the latent representations of what's going to happen in seven words from now. And what we show is that these dual objectives leads to activations which are more similar to the brain than the uh, sole proximal objective, which is next word prediction. That's sort of the bottom line. And then we have this other approach, which is not based on GPT-2 uh, fine-tuning or retraining. It's based on... Uh, uh, sort of a linear algebra decomposition. And so what we do is um, a bit more complex uh, technically, but conceptually it's it's the same. So we take the activations of GPT-2 in response to a given word uh, and its, its preceding context. And we ask, okay, what is the similarity between GPT-2 and the brain? That gives us one score. And then we say, if we were 
to add to these activations of GPT-2, the future activations of GPT-2, would that increase the similarity with the brain? And the answer is yes, uh, up to, uh, well, it peaks around uh, 9, 10 words, uh, if I recall uh, correctly. And so we can do this systematically. We can say if we add the future activations of the word, so let's say we do a, we, we sort of peek into what's going to happen in the future. We embed these words in, into GPT-2. We extract the activations. We use these additional future activations and we stack them onto the current GPT-2. We ask, uh, is it similar, yes or no, to the brain? We obtain a higher uh, similarity score, a higher brain score. And we can do this uh, and vary systematically the number of words we picked into uh, in, in the future. We can vary how deep uh, the representations uh, of, of, of this word, these words uh, should be to do this, uh, this uh, similarity assessment uh, systematically. And the point, all of this is very technical and I, I cannot imagine how hard it is to, to, uh, to follow what I'm saying in a podcast without any diagrams. Um, but the point is that we have uh, methods to evaluate whether an algorithm which has long-term forecast predictions is more similar to an algorithm which has only short-term forecast, pre forecast predictions like GPT-2. So that's a method. The yeah. first result is that Hang it works better. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm also curious to know whether people understand. Um, I, I, th I think so, actually, because um, maybe for me at least, I mean, I, I guess I've already read the paper, but I understand it more already having heard you say it out loud. I think there's something about like just describing things in natural conversational language that just makes them easier to understand. At least I hope so. That's the premise of the podcast. Um, so yeah, I think people will understand the gist of it. And there's always the paper if they want the details. Um, okay, so you want to tell us what you found? Sure. Yeah, I mean, I did not mean to under-evaluate uh, your audience. I know this is a pretty, uh, <laughs> pretty <laughs> advanced uh, audience. Um, so the result. The result is that if you enhance these uh, GPT-2 algorithms, so a language model with a, a long-term forecast predictions, the activations ends up being more similar to the brain. That's sort of the, the basic finding. And this is not the case everywhere in the brain. It's the case really in the lang standard language network. So it's uh, supertemporal sulcus and gyrus, uh, prefrontal areas, especially IFG, uh, a bit of the angular gyrus. But it's, it's not the case in, let's say, uh, the uh, ventral visual stream or in the motor areas. Uh, I have a doubt. I haven't looked at the picture recently. I don't. I don't know whether we have a gain in, in the in any of the voxels in, in the motor context. But generally speaking, it's really the expected uh, language network. It's typically the type of areas that you would end up with if you were to do a localizer on language as opposed to some of the tasks. And so those are the regions which are better explained, more similar to the algorithm, which is uh, a long-range forecast and a short-range forecast one. And with from this we can systematically decompose how is the forecast structured because we can systematically vary uh, whether the forecast should be short range or long range or middle range. Uh, and so we, we, we try with uh, trying to predict the next word or two words from now, three words, four, four words, and, and so on and so forth. And it peaks around, uh, I think, again, between eight and ten words. Uh, it varies slightly. It's not an exact uh, number, depending on, on, on the voxel you look at. 
Uh, and what's really interesting is that it's, uh, this forecast depends on, uh, the range of the forecast depends on where you are in, in the hierarchy of language. For instance, if you are around the primary auditory areas, the forecast seems to be peaking uh, at a shorter range than if you are in the prefrontal cortex. Mm-hmm. And again, this is not just a representation; it's it's the prediction. It's you would be uh, you would have a better model of the prefrontal cortex if you enhance your language model with a long-range forecast, and you would have a better model of the auditory area uh, if. Uh, you had a short-range uh, forecast, and you have sort of this gradient uh, uh, in between this, those two those two extremes. Yeah, so that's sort of one one uh, dimension of of this uh, forecast structure, and the other dimension is not how far ahead uh, the forecast happens, but how deep uh, it is. And so, for each future word, we can try to predict the word level, which is sort of the lowest possible level, but also it's the representation that it has in the first layer, in the second layer, and the third layer, and so on and so forth. And that gives us sort of a level of abstraction, uh, loosely defined as the, how deep the representation is in the in the transformer. And mm-hmm. again, uh, for each voxel in the brain, we can say, is, is it better to have a forecast which is rather shallow or rather deep in, in the network? And again, we observe that Prefrontal and parietal areas tend to be associated with uh, deeper uh, forecast, uh, and auditory areas tend to be associated with shallower uh, forecast. Uh, so that resonates a lot with this idea of predictive coding, where you would have not just one prediction, but a hierarchy of predictions, and these predictions are organized similarly to the hierarchy of inference of, uh, of representation, which is that lower level areas represent the past and predict the future in a relatively short uh, time scale and at a relatively shallow level whereas the deepest levels uh, of the of the language network would be uh, learning uh, and representing much longer context would be anticipating much further away well much is perhaps an extension it's further away than, than lower level regions uh, and would, would predict these uh, these more abstract levels of representations yeah and it looks like yeah specifically like prefrontal not premotor um, angular gyrus is the part of parietal which looks to be the most extreme on that measure and then also I'd say like ventral temporal like kind of inferior temporal you've it, it looks like that. I mean, that, that also all kind of makes sense in terms of being like um, further downstream than those mm. primary auditory areas. Um, I probably should go and eat dinner with my family, but I do, but I, I do want to ask you one more thing if I can. Um, sure. You have this really neat analysis. It's very complex. <laughs> so I, um, I'm a little bit hesitant, but I, but I'd love to hear you explain it. Um, uh, where you look at this um, semantic versus syntactic forecasts. And, I mean, this is a t- this is a topic which I just think is super interesting. Um, the extent to which we can, you know, parcelate out the language network along those lines. So, um, can I uh, can I get you to tell us how how that how you distinguish between those different kinds of predictions? That that's actually I think my favorite paper from uh, from the PhD of Charlotte Cochette, who defended uh, recently a PhD. Uh, so we, we had this analysis is derived from, from this paper. So we had a, a paper at ICML 
I think it's 2021, uh, where we developed this analysis to disentangle syntactic from semantic representations in the brain using uh, language models. And uh, here we're just applying this analysis in the context of forecasts. But in the paper, uh, we, we are applying it in the context of just representations. Uh, but it's completely uh, analogous, in, analytically speaking. And the idea is, is not that difficult. Uh, it's, it's quite mathy, the paper. But the idea is, is, I think it's pretty simple. Usually what we do is we compare a deep net to the brain in response to the same input. So the deep net here once upon a time, the participant here once upon a time, and we evaluate whether the activations of the deep nets are similar to the activations of the brain. And in this paper, we thought, okay, perhaps what we can do is not present the same input, but to present an input with the same syntactic structure, but uh, a different semantic content. So for instance, uh, so once upon a time, I'm not able to pass this uh, <laughs> quickly, <laughs> so I can take another example. If you take uh, if you take the following sentence, the giant ball is on the table, uh, you can create a sentence which is uh, a red uh, cow um, lies uh, near the house, um, it has the same uh, mm -hmm. consistency tree. It has the same dependency tree. Um, but of course, it doesn't have the same meaning. And so what we do in this paper is we made uh, a little algorithm which generates a ton of sentences. And uh, we try to uh, uh, optimize this algorithm. Uh, it's not in an end-to-end fashion, but uh, basically at the end, uh, generate sentences that have the same dependency tree as the original sentence. And we present them to the algorithm, and we extract the activations for each of those uh, sentences, which are syntactically matched. Uh, and we, we, the result of, of, of this process is that we can have an activations in the deep net in response to sentences with the same syntactic structure. Uh -huh. uh, and we can use those activations to try to predict uh, brain activity. So with this, basically, what we have is we have a model that tells us what is the expected activations given a syntactic structure. And this model is not derived from uh, linguistics. We don't have any ideas about merge and, and movement and, and all this. It has some constraint because of we, we do uh, generate sentences which have the same dependency trees. So it's, it's not completely uh, random either. Um, but but it's kind of a linguistic free uh, model of, in in that sense, and we can try to see which areas are predicted uh, effectively uh, by these activations, these syntactic activations in the model, as opposed to a full uh, language model. Um, Okay, so that's one analysis, and then we can compare these these uh, this effect to uh, a random model or a model which only has access to position. So you regenerate sentences which have the same number of words, but they don't have the same syntactic structures. And uh, finally, uh, compare this to a, f a model which has the exact same sentence, and so it has both syntax and semantics. Mm -hmm. And by doing this systematic comparison, we can try to see which areas basically uh, are accounted for by a syntactic representations, which areas are uh, accounted for by a semantic uh, representations, and which areas are associated with uh, both representations. So you need both syntactic activations and semantic activations to best account for the activation in a given voxel. 
Uh -huh. And so that's what we do in, 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 in here in this paper with forecasts. And what we observe very briefly is that the uh, syntactic forecast seems to be relatively shallow and relatively around uh, superotemporal gyrus and superotemporal sulcus. And it's not heavily associated uh, a bit. I was a bit disappointed by this, but it's just data. <laughs> it's not associated, for instance, heavily with IFG uh, or... Uh, with uh, the angular gyrus. It tends to be relatively uh, uh, centered around the, the temporal lobe, whereas the mm -hmm. semantic forecast uh, appear to be uh, more distributed. Uh, so that perhaps is a clue towards... Uh, it's a first step towards trying to systematically decompose these activations into something that we can uh, relate our theories uh, on, as opposed to just say, this is a similar activation between the deep net and the brain, but we have no idea what this activation actually represents. Yeah, oh, it's it's great. Um, I mean, you kind of like, I guess in a way you're, I mean, just to put it in a different way, you're degrading the signal in different ways and seeing whether it make whether whether it matters or not. Like you can taking out the semantics but keeping the syntax or vice versa. You know, those of Absolutely. us that those of us that work on syntax, um, and are not, you know, living in the past, will be very happy <laughs> to see the STS centric finding oh, yeah. um like because you know well, it depends on the school of thought i guess well i mean okay like you know with patients um we just don't find syntactic deficits following from ifg lesions um mm. we we find very consistently from posterior temporal lesions um mm. so this definitely accords with my expectations at least and it's quite it's interesting, the syntax map is quite lateralized, maybe more so than the semantic map. We haven't talked much about lateralization today. I mean, that's going to be a topic for another time, but mm. this is this is one of the more lateralized ones, which I like that finding too. Um, so yeah, that's very cool. I think you did it, uh, you really did explain it well. Um, and I would just encourage all the listeners to go take a look at this paper because it, it's so rich and there's there's so much, you know, there's so many details to discover here. Yeah, I, th I think there are probably a lot more things to uh, to try to interpret from those brain maps than than we did. Um, yeah, that's for sure. That's, that's that's very clear. Yeah, no, there's a lot more here than we're talking about. We're really really just scratching the surface of these papers. They're all three of them, like that we've talked about, very complicated, and they've got whole figures in them and whole analyses that we haven't even touched on. But you know, that's there for for the readers. Um, Okay, well, I don't want to take up any more of your time. Um, it's been really great talking with you and learning more about your work. And I'm glad that you're in Marseille. That's going <laughs> to um, make it even more convenient for SNL. Well, thank you very much for yeah giving me the opportunity to, to talk about this. It, it's a pleasure uh, to, to, to discuss those, those topics. Um, and yeah, I hope, I hope the, the readers uh, or the listeners, I should say, uh, Will not be afraid by the technicalities. It's true that these papers tend to be they tend to have a lot of technical stuff and and math and regressions and all this. But I think you can also understand the paper without going into these uh, these elements uh, uh, too deeply. Uh, of course, you should if you want to to criticize and see the the the, the potential pitfalls and, and assumptions that we make. But but uh, yeah. Please, please don't be afraid by the technicality. I think the, no. you can really uh, get the message without uh, understanding the math. Yeah, these papers are readable to, to our field. I mean, yeah, nobody, including me, I mean, I certainly don't understand lots of the details. 
it's not my area, um, but I can definitely get the gist of them by, you know, they're, re- they're written in a way that you could read them. So, yeah, really enjoyed it. Um, thank you very much and uh, look, thank forward you very much, to see- look forward to seeing you in your country in a few months. <laughs> yep. Uh, likewise. I'll see you All in right. Marseille. Take care. Bye. Bye. Okay, well, that's it for episode 27. Thank you very much, Jean-Rémy, for coming on the podcast. I've linked the papers we discussed in the show notes and on the podcast website at langneurosci.org slash podcast. I'd like to thank Marcia Pettit for transcribing this episode and the journal Neurobiology of Language for generously supporting some of the costs of transcription. See you next time.